Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design uh, with RMIT University, and I'm here with Enza Angelucci. Stephen, did I, did I pronounce that correctly? 100%. Um, Enza, you're connected with RMIT. You're yes. um, an alumni, and you also lecture at RMIT. So you get us. You've been there quite a while. I have. And you've also established your own practice um, how many years ago? Quite a long time ago. So um, part-time since I was an undergrad um, and then full-time practice 2006. And why did you start a practice? Because it's not easy starting a practice. Was this, you know, did you get tired of working with other practice practitioners or... Uh, I mean, you've worked with some great people. You worked with Norman Day at one stage. That's right. Um, it actually coincided with um, my postgrad at, I did a postgrad master's at RMIT. Um, and so it was a good time in which to start full time practice. We just, I just completed um, working at Norman's at that stage. We were working on the RMIT campus in Vietnam. So there was this opportunity to understand scale in architecture so it was time to venture out um i'd been with norman for almost a decade so it was it was it was a time it was either that or work for someone else or partnership with someone else so i thought i'd take take that opportunity as a female as well i know it's sort of i don't want this conversation to be gendered based but it was we're so few and far between with practices um locally so i thought this was an opportunity and take that knowledge so and also RMIT Architecture supports smaller practices in their, um, you know, in their startups. So that was really why we decided, I decided to take on that opportunity. Um, Enza, when you're starting a practice, do you have anything in mind in terms of what you want to focus on? Is there something you felt, you know, you can't be everything as an architect and you can't say, look, I want to go in doing this. What was, what was something that you really you thought it long and hard about that you felt was missing in the market? So for, for me, I was very interested in um, the typologies that I'd experienced at Norman's, which are educational and um, residential. For, for me and for my practice, it's very much about architecture is a process of learning and facilitates learning. Life is a learning journey. So it was how we could take these typologies in a new found 21st century learning paradigm um, the tradition of the, 19th, the 20th century um, learning environment, which was very much about understanding industrialisation, numeracy and literacy, was a, a yesteryear learning um, opportunity. So we want to take the sort of approach of housing and educational and this newfound creative learning into um, our practice. So it formulates that and then it becomes came part of this research that we had, well, I'd instigated at RMIT called, in, called um, Urban Generosity. And uh, so ar architecture is livability in all its forms, you know, internally, externally, in an urban um, scope as well as um, in an individual interior scope. So it, it facilitates a whole journey for people to experience. And we wanted to start that with younger people as well. Um, you're an interesting one. A lot of architects, you know, they're kind of so eager to get that big house, that big house on that big block of land. 
you know, to make the big statement. But that's not you, Enza. That's almost the opposite of you. What I find interesting about your practice and you personally is that you actually like really small signs. And that's more challenging. It comes with all sorts of problems. Um, and because people's expectations are often, uh, you know, more extravagant and they, you know, some, sometimes now families are, are buying these small sites and wanting big family homes. What, what do you find pleasurable about that? Um, it, it's something I've been thinking about. We're, we're, I was, you know, brought up in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, so we're used to quite small sites. Victorian Terrace, for example, we, you know, we're raising our family in one. Um, so they are the speculative homes of, of the um, uh, 20th, oh, the 19th century, the yesteryear. They're sort of the Caroline Springs of today. And these sites are quite small and people obviously had less. So their footprints are typically five by anywhere between 20 to 34 metres in length. And I'm interested in how people could live and the communities that that creates. So the lovely thing about being so close is you end up being very conscious of your neighbour and how you live in that close proximity and that sort of real sense of village. And the suburbs for me, you know, my parents migrated out to the suburbs in the 80s because that was their desire, um, having been migrants themselves. And that was what they anticipated the next, you know, that's the next step in success. But what I found was there was a disperse, dispersing between people and their livability and how they actually corresponded with each other. And so how do you actually come back to a 19th century typology into a 21st century or 20th century livable and, you know, these houses that we live in, there's such a desirability when it comes to 19th century Victorian terraces, but they're awful places to live in. They have no light, minimal cross-ventilation, designed for the sort of um, the mechanisms of the 19th century fireplaces. High ceilings are great. Those volumes are great. So that, they're the sort of conditions I, we like dealing with, those problems, and they're quite difficult to solve sometimes um, and make it more livable than what it was. So, yeah, that's been our practice ever since um and so look it's you, you know you've just completed one house that i saw recently that i was very taken with um tiny plot you know probably only 100 100 square meters if that on a corner site uh, bought by a family with how many kids four four children i mean this is a, a big family and you know they could have easily just said look enzo We'll go to the burbs, you know, just do us a nice extension at the back. We'll be happy. But you've packed an awful lot of program into a very small envelope. So you've obviously excavated to create um, a basement for the children to play, you know, a basement rumpus room. There are bedrooms. There are nooks. How do you kind of start a process like that? I mean, when the person approached you initially, the client, and said, um, you know, we want a family home and this is what we have. I mean, did you kind of, were you straightforward and say, look, I think you're asking a bit much. I mean, I just don't, I couldn't envisage what you've done in this little terrace for a family with four kids. There's six people now in this house. Um, no, because, you know, your history's shown us that people live in very small proximities and, and they live happily. Um, maybe it's the tradition of, you know, my parents migrated as Italians. 
And so there's, you know, the family land there gets carved up and carved up over generations and everyone still lives together. Um, they typically go up or down um, because they can't expand. I don't see that, you know, having gone back and met my cousins, I don't see them that as a detraction. I actually see that as an advantage. So when we were given this opportunity, um, a couple of seminal pieces of architecture that I teach my students are Corb's Unite um, in Marseille, and it's a very interesting, not dissimilar to this site. It's um, 4.7 metres in width, and this is that as well. It's just a bit more 4.5 in width, and the length is pretty much the same. But what makes that so desirable, um, Marseille, Unite Marseille, is that light so we designed so that there's always light and you actually see sunsets and sunrises and that and we extend views. So Corb was very, you know, these were the elements that were important to him. He talked about sunlight, air, views, concrete and steel and that sort of priority. And we did the same. We introduced two northern aspects to this very tight site, to its shorter ends and um, cross ventilation. So when you walk in the front door, you actually see the other side of the street through its length. So the site feels really big and it's not. So these are just a couple of, you know, design methods that we use when we design in these tight constraint spaces. So our biggest reward is when people feel a sense of light and air and openness. Um, and also Sejima um, in Plumgrove House, which is a six by six square metre home, she's able to pack so much into that, or they are, um, and that's also through verticality. So we design the vertical um, and that's really important to us as well. So we've implemented all these things. So the house does not feel small at all. It's interesting. We've had 15, we've had all our staff in there and everyone's walking around and go, it's, it's small. I'm like, it's small, but it doesn't feel small. So that's important. That's a win for us. Have we, Enza, just become unrealistic about what's achievable now with housing or we've become greedy and we just think that actually if we get a bigger house, we're actually happier and, you know. I think it's about... You know, we're, we're, you know, it's it's obviously housing affordability is a huge issue, and you know we're all as professionals grappling with how we can um, allow that to occur. Affordable housing. It's about desire. When when your assets are based on the home, you know, your wealth is based on the home that you own, and these become really important. So this little house that we talked about. You know, it's 100 square metres. We've made it 200 square metres in footprint. Living in North Carlton has a certain um, desirability, a certain affluence to it. And I think that's where the flip side is. You can go further out. Bigger houses mean that you're more affluent. I think we need to change our thinking, particularly if we want to be sustainable in how we do this in the long term. Um, and the other good thing about that area where this house is, you know, that you have all those wonderful amenities, parks, exactly. libraries at your doorstep, a little village community. So, you know, you do more out of the house. You don't have to have exactly. dinner parties for 20, you know. Exactly. And this is a little cottage that was a three-bedroom cottage. We had to take this to VCAT to be able to go up and get the extent that we got. We... We analysed all the open spaces in the block to actually understand that a nine square metre courtyard was sustainable in its open space and that we could actually allow for a rooftop deck as well so that you could see the city views and the kids can play and have different areas of play. If you have just one backyard, then there 
we understand education and how children learn. And so we understand that having a disbursement of spaces for children to play, even though they're small, is better than having one big space because they don't know what to do with that. But you have to help children learn and enjoy. And so, um, yeah, we, we treated it like a learning school as well. So that, that you can see how our practice weaves, that sort of education and residential keep on weaving into each other. Well, talking of education, Enza, you've kind of come up with a new scheme for portable classrooms, which I think is really an important thing and we need to discuss because in my day, and I'm older than you, so um, I remember still sitting in those awful portable classrooms thinking they're hot as blazes in summer, they're really unpleasant in winter, uh, the wind goes through them, they're really pretty mean spaces. And you've come up with a concept that's really quite exciting. Tell me about the, your module system that you've been working on for many years. Claire Newton um, has, was looking at um, the portable as well as and part of a competition, um, Future Proofing Schools. We entered that. And what we realised is that portable, Stephen, that you're in, extraordinarily efficient like it, you can't it's, it's so rationalized that you can't do much to it um, and it works it ticks boxes we understand that you know um 40 percent of the infrastructure of the state government school has to be portable because um, schools contract and expand at such different rates so you've got the infrastructure that's fixed and then all this flexibility but what we realised, there was no delight. There's absolutely nothing beautiful about them. There's nothing that inspires the, the students occupying those spaces. And we realised that the rectangle is extraordinarily efficient, but it needed its sort of better half. And so the better half became the triangle. And we found um, this pattern that um, it's the pentacle um, pattern. And we understood, we took the midpoints of that and understood that we could actually modularise this for the portable construction um, industry here in Victoria and created um, Stage 1 at Glengala Primary School, which gave us all these amazing flexibilities of contemporary learning and was able to be adapted to any typology in school, in educational facilities. So we're pretty excited. We call it Archimods and we're pretty excited about it. And in terms of the delivery, Enza, it's a lot quicker yes. than the standard offering. So with schools, um, and you know, time is money. There's a lot of decanting with schools if you, and disruption for students. And typically these programs take about two years. And you can imagine, you know, a student's life, they're in you know, grade four, let's take primary, grade four, by grade six, they haven't enjoyed these new facilities. So um, what portables, off-site manufacturing, and they're permanent modular, they're not no longer the portables that we were talking about, Stephen, they're, they're, they're still the same. But these are permanent buildings and they will take between design in a template design to occupation by the students, 10 months. And there's such a win for all of the um, stakeholders involved in that. Um, and, yeah, so that's been a really successful program that the state government ran recently and I think they're into stage four and almost completing that program, which we're involved in. We were quite proud of that process. So, uh, Enzo, theoretically, this could become quite a big part of your business. Your yes, yes, it, it can be. Um, it, the uptake here in Australia is still limited. Um, Europe, for example, Northern Europe, uses this sort of methodology of construction. Um, it's about, I think it's about 40% in smaller scale buildings. Um, I think we're going to have to do the same in Australia, but we're still taking some time. 
we just don't have the resourcing and the labour to allow for um, our construction needs. And so built on site is, has one advantage, particularly, let's say, our Victorian terraces, for example, you can't do that. But built off site has another really important advantage is you can streamline it so there's um, less wastage um, and uh, controlled environments so it's safer for the workers as well. So there's great ticks to it. We just don't, we still have, Stephen, as you said, you know, that old portable, you know, bad building that you have to occupy, whereas they're not, there's no limitations to them at all. We only have a limited amount of um, prefabricators here in Australia still, so it's a very small. America has a huge, huge network of them, so we'll see. And is it, is it a problem with, you know, um, this, well, it's a relatively new venture, but the people still have in the back of their minds that the portable is still something we don't want to get associated, we don't want to know about. And it's because it has been slightly tarnished that even though yours aren't portables, they're actually designed to be secured on site, they still have that legacy of, oh, no, we don't want a portable. You know, we'd rather go for, you know, a nice brick building. And look, ours have been brick, actually. So it's it's okay. it's just it's exactly the same methodology. I think the concept is that they're cheaper, but they're not because in the end you still have to build it, you have to transport it. Um, so there's no savings in reference to the construction. The only savings that a client makes is time. And so you know you can imagine decanting for a school for two years is a considerable cost. Um, so these are the things that we need to rationalise. And also as we, obviously, our population grows, we just don't have the construction um, power and labour force to allow for these constructions. So housing affordability is based on this. And we need to understand the relationships and the correlations between the two. Um, it's a, just a different way of thinking. I think our tradition of, you know, um, we put on a put on a tool belt and we can all belt out a house, you know, and that sort of mid-20th century post-war, that was such a necessity because, you know, we didn't have the labour force to build and we had the baby boomers and so we needed that. But that is long gone and we need to understand how we can efficiently begin to construct our future. Um, I think it's a bit naive to suggest we wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, our population's not going to expand. So it's a really interesting part process. Yeah, we're part, yeah very interesting process. Um, and so the other thing you mentioned um, to me when I spoke to you last time was, you know, it's really, it was quite refreshing and I, and I think it's an important thing to discuss, but really a house or a design isn't about you. It's not about you. It's really always about the client. Is it something that architects tend to forget? And I'm not, I think you, you're, an, you know, you, you don't think that way, but it was lo lovely hearing that uh, that those words from you as a reminder that it's not about you, it's about the clients. How important, you know, I mean, has it be, have, have architects lost their way a bit and, and becoming just more concerned about what things look like and, you know, creating these statements that perhaps will win an award? You know, have we lost sight of what really architects are meant to be doing? Um, I don't think so. I, I've... Part of, we've got some tenants in our office and they're um, a couple of decades younger than me um, and I mentor them and I can see what their work's doing and I don't think architects are about 
them. It's it just can't be in the end if you don't have a client. You're not you you design for someone or something. You're it's always other. It's never oneself. So uh, I think in some ways, if you look at all of architecture, and it's so contextual for me, architecture needs to be contextual. And whatever that is, it might be the client's needs or desires. You know, it's urban, it's place, um, it's urban condition. But I can't actually even imagine an architect that hasn't designed for someone or something. So I don't think it's the nature of architects. We, you know, I know the past has shown the heroic architect, but I think it was misunderstood, to be quite honest. Um, I play, do you remember Global Village, which is a sort of 1980s um, uh, it was on the ABC, I think, or SBS. No, SBS, apologies. And it was, you know, 4 o'clock on an afternoon. But there's this wonderful um, Global Village uh, little shot of Corb's Marseille, Unite. And what, you know, they thought Corb was crazy. Like, they thought he was this man-man putting 2,000 people into this building. And it was one of our first sort of multi-residential. But he was designing for people. He was designing for others. And... In the end, even though, you know, we'd say Le Corbusier is the most heroic architect ever known to, to us, the reality is he wasn't about himself, really. He was designing for others. He was like, I'm going to design this. I'm going to give you the key. Now you enjoy it. It's the machine for living. I mean, in itself, that says something that we wouldn't, you know, describe today. But he's saying it's for others. And it's, that's just what we are. That's what we do as architects. Um, and so just finally, what gives you the most pleasure about what you're doing i mean obviously you know dealing with local authorities councillors you know must drive you nuts but what what's something that really keeps you going that you just feel that you just love more than anything you get the feedback more so from my residential but all my it's when people enjoy using the buildings and they enjoy being there so you know i've got a client we've done 13 projects together and you know there's always the patron every architect has a patron and she's and uh did an extension not an extension i actually reduced her footprint in alwood it's a it's a, a mission uh a spanish mission in um in alwood beautiful trees and i gave her a roof deck and she just says i just love living here because what we did was I mean, I always think it's Architecture 101, but we created a lovely north light and a space for her to have her family and eat. And, yeah, I mean that, and whenever I go there, it's joyful. And that gives me the ultimate pleasure when people have their spaces that they occupy and whatever they're doing in on a daily basis that they enjoy. Um, that's, that's definitely a win for us. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me today, um, Enza. It's been a treat talking to you. Um, and I love hearing ideas and you have a lovely way of expressing them and um, look forward to things that are coming up in the future. Thanks, Stephen. It's always a pleasure to talk about architecture. And thank you so much for asking us. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty. Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Talking Design, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at talkingdesign underscore.